0: We are back in the book of Acts, kind of. <laughs> you can be flipping over to Acts 17 if you're near a, if you're near a Pew Bible, that's page 1101. And um I'm gonna deal with Acts for two weeks and then I will be on my way on my sabbatical, so. Whenever I return, I have some series, plural, up my sleeve, which means we probably won't return to AXE until the New Year. We were last in AXE, I believe, at the end of um, August, <clears throat> and uh, then we took a three-week departure from AXE on an unplanned series around the topic of what I called sabbaticalitis. <laughs> and which is burnout or exhaustion, indifference because of 2020, 2021, COVID, cancer, and all the other nasty C-words. And uh, feeling satisfied that I examined that topic for three weeks, I compelled to at least come back to Acts uh, before sabbatical. Um, and anyways, I'm also just wanted to say that I'm excited about all the guest preachers that you guys are going to have while I'm gone. In fact, Christy says, I want to be around for that. <laughs> And uh so if you're tired of my preaching, uh, fill the pews for October on the first Sunday of November. And um, I think you will like who you hear. But as I said, we're back in Acts, kind of, because I'm going to preach on the same passage for two weeks. Uh, the first week here is more of a topical and tangent inspired by our text. It's about a topic near and dear to me. It's a topic I've taught at here in Sunday school classes. But I find it to be so important that it just seems uh, preach-worthy from behind the pulpit, and it's on the Bible itself. It's on translation, philosophy, and manuscripts. And some of you hear that, and you said, Man, I wish we had a bigger sanctuary so I could just slip out the back door. <laughs> and uh, I took advantage of our size, but I hope you'll be engaged. I'll try to make it engaging. We do have a back door, so if you want to come up the aisle and pass me. No, just um <laughs> But in honor of hearing the Lord's word, though, let's just stand and read uh, the verses that inspired me to consider this topic, and then we'll—I'll get to nerd out, and you'll get to fall asleep. So it'll be great. Acts seventeen, um, you, and you say you have a really good job at selling your sermons, Kevin. Uh, verses ten through twelve. We read the the brothers Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you that it has been preserved. We thank you for translators and translations that bring these ancient words of wisdom, these timeless words into our laps on any given day. That all these words written by so many authors over so many years has been faithfully given to us. We thank you for that. Father, help us to treasure your word because they come from you. Um, Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the word as well, that you came and dwelt among us. And we thank you that you died for our sins and you rose again. And we thank you for the message that we get to share about how you have saved the world. So I pray that as we study this topic today, that you would grow our admiration for you and what you say, that you would grow our faith and obedience to you and what you say and that we would take greater treasure and hope in what you say as well. So say what it is that you desire, and we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been in the habit here and there of taking a Bible with me to town. And a few weeks ago... I was leaving Cloninger's, and I got in my Durango. I looked at the Bible I took with me, and I looked at a guy over at the gas pump. And even though I, I knew him, I, I didn't know if he knew me. He was a couple years ahead of me at school. That's how I remembered who he was. And finally, I don't know if it was conviction or if it was just the fact that this is what I planned on doing this day, no matter what. I uh, was about to head up the hill, but I grabbed my Bible. I walked over to him, and I said, can I give you this? He was working on the back of his truck trying to repair a light or something and he, uh, while his truck was getting filled up and he looked at me, he was taken back a little, a little bit confused. And I asked him again and he said, I don't really have need for one. And, uh, but he, then he said, I could be the middleman. He said, I'll give it away for you. And so I left it, I got in my car, I drove off and I prayed that he would find use for it. Now, why would I do something weird and bizarre like that? Well, it comes down to this. You and I believe... Excuse me. You and I believe in the power of the Word of God. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in James one twenty one: Receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able." To save your souls. Jesus himself, he imagines the word as a seed. And the task of messengers of the word is to throw that seed, knowing that it might land on one of four soils. Not in one of four jars, if you were here earlier for our joke. But one of four soils. Good soil that receives it. Thorny soil that chokes out the word as other pursuits of our lives might choke out the word rocky soil where the seed doesn't take root because persecution and hostility because of the word's stances. Sometimes it drives people to hold the word less lightly. Or seeds thrown at a path wherein birds can come and eat the word just as quickly as Satan or some of his servants might come and throw off the word of our minds with the world's excuse for wisdom. We'll get to the narrative and the implications of this narrative in Acts next week, but for now in this passage, very memorable, tells us that Paul and Silas came to Berea, and it wasn't until those noble Bereans received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them were therefore, they believed. It wasn't until they received the Word, that they believed the scriptures the Word of God you know I know quite a few people whenever you ask them about their conversion story they point to a passage in the Bible more than the words of a pastor or a moment at the altar though I was saved like a good Christian child whenever I was young I actually point to a time of preaching that elevated the authority of scripture as a moment in my spiritual life where I really felt an awakening to the Lord and His mission. These Bereans, already Jews, thus already having access to the Word of God, the Old Testament, as we call it, examined the Scriptures and by them believed. You know, we don't know. The Bereans were not in Israel. Berea is in present-day Greece. It is possible that the Scriptures that the Bereans searched to compare with what Paul was saying was actually a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Septuagint meaning 70, as traditionally it was believed, I wouldn't even say believed, it's probably certain, that 70 Jewish scribes in Alexandria, Egypt, around 250 B.C., translated the Old Testament from the Hebrew into Greek, the common language of that day. When your New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, I dare you to flip back and read the Old Testament itself to compare with the quote. Oftentimes, you will find slight word alterations. Because the New Testament authors are quoting from the Septuagint, which your Bible translators translate into English, But meanwhile, the Old Testament of your Bibles are translated directly from Hebrew. Are you tracking? I know some of you are like, it's already happening, Kevin, the headache. Why are you doing that? No. Just look with me, actually. Since we're in Acts, I went to Acts 15. Here's the last time, I believe, in Acts, where the Old Testament was quoted in the New. This is happening during a big church council where all the Gentiles, which are non-Jews, are coming... To faith in Christ, and back in that day, it was more all the gods went with the nations, and so Jews are wondering, well, can non-Jews come to Christ? And so, we read this in Acts chapter 15, I believe this is James talking, and he says, "...and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen." I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Now let's go back to the actual passage it's quoting. Amos chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 And we read from the ESV, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now do you see the differences? And in fact, the ESVs, if you have one, usually come with footnotes to let you know the differences that the Septuagint has in Amos Nine verses eleven and twelve. So why doesn't the Acts fifteen recitation of Amos nine and the actual Amos nine agree? Why is that not happening? Again, because in Acts fifteen it's quoted from the Septuagint. Does that make sense? Does that you understanding? The Septuagint is the old testament in greek that the new testament authors had access to meanwhile amos is translated directly from the hebrew also if you're interested there are english translations of the septuagint lying around if you would like one my point is that people in the bible use translations we use translations the bible if you did not know is actually a library of books 66 books By over 40 authors written over 1500 years from multiple continents and in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And again, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Meanwhile, the New Testament authors originally wrote in Greek. For the remainder of this sermon, I want to look into factors of Bible translation and how that correlates to the decisions that you and I make whenever we pick a Bible to read? Because we have access to the Word of God and we distribute the Word of God, this seems to me a good question to ask. So I want to look at this in two deciding factors. I want to look at manuscript basis and translation philosophy, and I spared you on two other categories that I wanted to talk about. So I want you to feel like you're actually gaining something here and not losing this 45 minutes you can never have back in your life. Now, when it comes to manuscript basis, I've heard it put this way rather cleverly. It seems to be a decision of Bibles translated between a more category, as in we have more manuscripts in this category, or an older category, as in we have manuscripts of an older time, in other words, closer to the time that the Bible was actually written, just not as much as the more category, and we'll talk about that. So in one category of manuscripts, the the copies of the original writing themselves, we have a family of more or multiple manuscripts. This is called the received text, or if you want to sound like you go to Bible school, it's called Textus Receptus. (laughs) And... These manuscripts inspired the the King James, the New King James, and another Bible I've made mention from time to time. It's the modern English version. Uh, There was a church father named Jerome, and he started collecting the Hebrew scriptures, that is the Old Testament, and he started collecting the circulating New Testament gospel accounts, and he put them into a Latin translation called the Vulgate, Vulcate sounds like vulgar, it just means ga- common, common language. But I also want to make mention that in 397 A.D., where were you then? No, just kidding. There was a church council called the Synod of Carthage, which formally confirmed, and I use those words particularly, they formally confirmed what was already known, and that is the circulating text of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament Gospel accounts and Revelation, they all that they all felt inspired of God to say that this is His Word. And I want to say again, uh, formally confirmed, because I don't want you to get the idea that, oh, for about 350 years after the time of Christ, this was up in the air. Is this a question? What books are given to us by God and what books aren't? It was already known. These Christians just get together and say, we need to make an official statement on this so Christians universally can have a frame of reference if they get their hands on some of these books. This church father named Jerome, about a decade after that council, he starts putting together the Vulgate. If you fast forward to 1382, maybe you've heard of a man named John Wycliffe. Uh, John Wycliffe wanted the Bible in the common language of English at the time. And he used a lot of this Vulgate And Wycliffe was deemed a heretic. In fact, I believe it was this man that they also exhumed his bones and burned him again. Just so he's really dead, I guess. But um, the church at the time didn't want the word of God translated into the common tongue. They believed it was too holy. And the Latin language was the best language. And um, But, again, he used Jerome's work from the 4th century. Then in 1516... If you know your church history in 1517, Martin Luther would post his 95 theses. But a year before that, uh, a Catholic named Erasmus developed a Greek translation that worked from the Latin. It's kind of funny to me, he's working backwards again. So it went from Greek to Latin, Latin to Greek. But he did use some of the older Greek, and he used a lot of uh, the Vulgate, the Latin. And his manuscript helps forms the basis of what we call the Textus Receptus. So less than a 100 years after Erasmus' work in 1611, you have the King James. That was in 1611. Between 1629 and 1947, more manuscripts of the Bible are being found in caves, in old cathedrals and churches and so forth. And there's this big, well-documented, well-known discovery called the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1940. And as the story goes, because so some of you want stories, so I'll throw a story in for you. There was a shepherd in a local tribe in the region, and he left his flock of sheep and goats to search for his stray. This is how all good stories start. And walking among the crumbling limestone cliffs, I mean, I would think that the sheep is probably dead if you can't see him up there, but... um. He, this is uh, among the limestone cliffs that are lined the northern rim of the Dead Sea. Around the side of a place called Qumran, he found a cave in the steep rocky hillside. And he's intrigued, and he wants to throw a rock in there. So he does, and he heard a pot break. Now that doesn't seem like out of place. And so he eventually found many pots in all these caves holding old manuscripts. And some of them are of the biblical text. Um, and some are actually non-biblical texts uh, from the community there. Now, let's hear this from a positive point of these finds. It, it really actually confirmed that the Bible we had had our hands on at the time, primarily the King James Version, although some English translations were put out uh, between 1611 and 1940s when this was found, but it confirmed that we have an accurate translation because all these texts really agreed with one another. There are charts like these, sorry, I thought that was a bit bigger, but I believe they're also in your outline, but they're a dime a dozen, and um, in many Bible translation books, but to give you an idea, we have over 5,500 manuscripts of the New Testament, and a lot of these other books, old books, Homer, Plato, we don't even have that many manuscripts. Um, Plato, we actually looks like only have seven manuscripts to where we get our books of Plato now, if you read it. All that to say is that all these manuscripts that we have, the only differences that there are, we should say that there's a 99.5% accuracy to all the, all the translations we have with all these different manuscripts. But there is a question, then, where where do they not agree with each other? So if you remember about five hours ago, whenever I said that there is two sorts of manuscript basis. It's either a basis of the more manuscripts or the older manuscripts. That is, do you want a Bible that's inspired by the majority of texts uh, considered, or a Bible inspired by what's considered to be the oldest, therefore the closest to the actual time of writing? So again, there's 99.5% agreement, thus an only 0.5% difference, but it can be spotted. Do any of you have a King James or a New King James with you? Uh, Yes, you. Could you read out loud Acts 8.37 for me? Yep, verse 37. Yep. Okay, so if you know the story, that's when the Philip and the eunuch have met, and Philip tells them the story of Jesus, and he asks if he wants to be baptized, and he says, you may, if you believe in Jesus Christ. Well, let me read it to you out of the ESV. Oh, actually, I don't have it. That's what it looks like in the ESV. Um, And if you look in your ESV pew Bibles, you may note something similar In fact, if you have an NIV, an NLT, a CSB, you'll probably see something similar. Well, what's all this about? This is the 5%, a 0.5% of what is the textual variance between some of the Bible manuscript backgrounds. The the older manuscripts, often called the, the critical text in translation circles, has variances, and they appear to be what look like omissions. Now, I need you to follow me on this because when somebody sees this, like I've seen so many freaky Facebook posts, your Bible's trying to lie to you. It's not the case. Just follow me. The texts from about 400 up to uh, the, the Vulgate, basically, in Erasmus, these were the first Bibles produced in English. Now, it may shock you to know, but verse numbers were not written by the original authors. Like, Luke is not writing verse 1 in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with, you know, he's not writing verses, numbers. That actually didn't come until about 1555 from a Bible translator. So, the verse numbers are not inspired. The the the, the Bible editors and translators uh, wrote these so we can navigate these big library abits easier. So I didn't need to say to you, open up your Bibles to the part Where Paul goes to Berea. I could just say open up to Acts 17. So that's why verse numbers and chapters are put in there. But since the first English Bibles included verse numbers, and at the same time they were inspired by this more manuscript category, the Textus Receptus, well what happens whenever Bibles start being produced by the critical text or the older manuscript category? In order to accurately reflect the manuscripts that they were being inspired from, they had to remove verse numbers to show you the difference. Does that make sense? So there's no Bible out there that I know of, in mainstream, I should say, that has any hidden agenda to not let you see the full Bible. Rather, they're they're showing you accurately the manuscripts they're inspired from. Now, Textus Receptus Bibles, like I said, are King James, New King James, M.E.V., But practically every other Bible is inspired by the critical text. So then a question that many people debate over is, which one is the original written? Because some people do get concerned by that 0.5% difference. Other passages are, I think, John chapter 8. That is completely omitted um, in some of your critical texts. Or they'll have brackets and say, some manuscripts didn't have this in their Bible Um, Other passages, the Lord's Prayer, the last part of the Lord's Prayer is a debated variant. So there are other parts in the Bible, and they say, well, there can't be two manuscripts. Which one is the actual Word of God? Um, And so some people will say, well, it has to be the Textus Receptus because it has all the verses, and there's so much legacy and longevity, and it's been enjoyed over 400 years by now. While other people look at the critical text and they say, well, it's the closest to the original era they were written. So there's this debate. Some people feel like it's a hill worth dying on. A lot of the King James-only advocates are arguing from this argument. And uh, I don't believe it's a hill worth dying on. I just study with both translations. I just pick a tr- translation from the... I use the New King James a lot, and then I use the ESV a lot. So then I can see it all, and... Read your footnotes. A lot of your Bibles have footnotes to tell you, "Hey, this is in other Bibles." So, I want to look at one more other category. Your troopers. I see some of you are sweating beads. Some of you are napping. But um, I thought about bringing some water balloons today, but um, but one big question is translation philosophy, and you're like, "I love that word." So, what is the philosophy behind our theories of Translating. Now, you might be saying, what do you mean? I thought translating is pretty straightforward. We find a word in the language we don't understand. We find the corresponding English word, and voila. Yes, in that philosophy simplified. It has been called uh, formal equivalence, or it's been called essentially literal, or it's called word for word. You think about formal equivalence. You're, you're getting an equivalent from the original language, In the receptor language, which is our language that we're speaking in. But sometimes the form, even weird syntax, is translated. This is where we get a lot of Christianese phrases that you maybe never thought about, but the glory of God. (laughs) Instead of just God's glory. Or some people have called the, the translation I preach from, the ESV, the Yoda translation. If you know Star Wars and the guru Yoda, some of his famous quotes is, do or do not, there is no try. Um, but they think, Kevin, your Bible sounds like Yoda is saying it. And I'll give you an example of weird syntax in the ESV. It says in Psalm one Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So you hear that weird syntax. I mean, I'm walk-nodding to Phil's house. Um, walks not. The CSB would clear it up and say, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Or how about John 14.25 opens up this way, These things I have spoken to you. Whereas the CSB would be very straightforward, I have spoken these things to you. (laughs) The primary point with literal translations is that they're seeking as much as possible, though, to be a window to the original language. Why need any other translations? There is another thinking, another philosophy of translation that arose in the, actually fairly recently in the mid, early to mid 1900s. And people call this dynamic or thought for thought or meaning for meaning. And this philosophy focuses more on readership, uh, helping the reader to understand. Because as I just demonstrated, sometimes the word for word translates using weird syntax, and many of the higher, or many of the literal translations have high reading levels and elevated vocabulary. So the thought for thought, they see reading comprehension as a higher factor than spot on word for word translation. Let me give you an example of, in Job 935, Job is lamenting that he doesn't feel capable of speaking to God on a face-to-face basis. He wants a mediator. If only there was a mediator. Yes, that Bible is pointing us to Jesus. But he says in Job 9.35 in the ESV, Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Now, I actually read this in the ESV in my own time, and I was confused. So I did have to look to another translation The New Century Version, which is a dynamic translation, it's actually the first Bible that I read thoroughly. I got one as a gift, and I actually just read uh, lots of books in the Bible in it because I understood it well. But the New Century Version says, Then I could speak without being afraid, but I am not able to do that. Now, does it make more sense? Yeah. But let's not forget they're not translating word for word everything in the original language. In fact, they're omitting some, and they're putting some in. The first phrase removes the pronoun him in the original language. Now, Job is being portrayed as being generally afraid, but of what or whom we may not know if we were just reading this translation. The second phrase is entirely interpretation, as the actual Hebrew words are closer translated in the ESV. What the NCV translators are saying, well, this is probably what Job meant, so we'll just put that in there with no original words in the original language. Now, am I saying that the New Century Version is wrong in its delivery? It's very likely that Job was meaning, right? Meaning for meaning translation, what the NCV put here. But the fact remains, and we should know this, that you are now reading and seeing an interpretation of what the New Century Version translators thought job is saying and not the clearest picture of what job really said can you follow me i'm not asking if you agree where i'm going with this but at least you can follow that logic so it's as if somebody took my sermon and said kevin you're preaching very elevated today let me rewrite it for you dumb it down and give it to your congregants and put your name on it well i would feel a little bit cheated because somebody else is now deciding what i'm saying today now, I, wanna, I want you to hear that I'm not arguing from a nitpicking standpoint. I'm arguing from convictions that I think all of us share. We all believe that the original manuscripts written by the actual people are writing inspired by God. Speaking of translation in words, inspired comes from two words that means God breathed. And we believe that when whoever wrote Job wrote down, wrote it inspired by God, or God breathed out the words he's writing, and providentially, that's what came out. So a logical progression of that belief should be, then, how far do we take that? Do we take that God inspires translators to remove words and put in words in their own translation? Are the NCV translators inspired by God to do that? Because if they are, it's a lot like the dilemma Jesus states in the Bible when the Pharisees accuse him of being in league with Satan. And he says, can Satan cast out Satan? And the connection is this. If God inspired the author of Job to write those words, why would he inspire a translation team to change those words that God first wanted Job to write anyways? And if the answer is so we can understand it, well, then how far is okay? Like, when do we need to stop studying to learn it? And when do Bible translators need to stop literally changing God's Word in the name of so we'll understand it? And if I need to study Shakespeare in high school until I get it, why can't I study the Bible, which is a thousand times easier than Shakespeare, to get it? But why would I demand somebody alter the Word of God before I just take a little extra time to understand the Bible? Does that make sense? And let me just say here, this is not throwing people who've worked on many dynamic translations under the bus. This is just a disagreement with their philosophy. I know a lot of people who are genuinely loving Christians who I disagree with, and I'm able to maintain disagreement with them without thinking any ill of them or thinking them not saved or or not converted or whatever. I'm arguing here about their philosophy, not their livelihoods or their faith. There is a third category within translation philosophy I want to make mention. We've, we've talked about word for word, and we've talked about meaning for meaning, or thought for thought. Some have tried to carve out a third category between these two. Perhaps some see things as I have laid out, that this is the very word of God, but also, some are still concerned that there's some hard to understand parts of the Bible that we just need to interpret to make reading the Bible a bit easier so people don't need to pull out a commentary or call a Bible teacher whenever they come to certain passages. And these have been called mediating translations or middle of the road. Or sometimes Bible translations will come up with their own word, like the CSB says, it's an optimal equivalent, which isn't very prideful or anything. We have the optimum translation. And what these translations are is they're going to be primarily word for word with a few more exceptions than literal translations might make. But where a word-for-word translation is fairly easy to comprehend, such as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you got to be two to understand that sentence. So we're not going to change it. Although some Bibles I've noted, for whatever reason, have. But that's a fairly easy word-for-word. But, and I made mention of this already when comparing the ESV and CSB, Some of you saw how the CSB cleared up that syntax. That's what some mediating translations might do. They're word for word, but then when it comes to some verses, they'll reorganize the syntax. Or they'll clear up idioms. Here's a rather interesting passage in Psalm 147, verse 10. ESV says, His delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. You're like, alright, I'm going to bed. That's... That's a refreshing verse there. Um, what is the psalmist saying here about God? Well, the CSB takes a thought-for-thought approach on this verse. Again, one of the few. And a lot of mediating Bibles are really conservative as far as how often they do this. But the CSB says, if I can get, there we go. He is not impressed by the strength of a horse. He does not value the power of a warrior. And you can see now maybe how the ESV is what they're saying. God does not take pleasure in the legs of a man is is thought to mean that God is not impressed by military might. He's not working with military strength in mind. And so the CSB, though the original language didn't have words like power or warrior, they tried to uncloud the idiom or the metaphor and give us essentially what a phrase or sentence might mean. And I should say that most mediating translations will have a footnote and say, here's the literal translation of that phrase. This category of Bibles would include the CSB, uh, the predecessor, the HCSB, the NIV, a Bible called the New English Translation, and then there's a fairly new one that I really actually like called the BSB, or the Berean Standard Bible. Which, ironically, what we're going through today about the Bereans. But, now, this category in these Bibles, some are going to have some different degrees of times and places where they might choose thought for thought, translating over literal. But they're aiming for a medium, a middle ground. I'm going to make you aware of two resources briefly, and then I have a close, closing thought. The end is in sight. Two resources. I've read two books about all this stuff, and they're from both sides. There's one that really argues for dynamic and mediating. There's another one that really argues literal is where you need to be. And so with the idea of what the proverb says about one side sounds right before you hear the other case, I'm going to encourage you, if you're interested in this, read both books. One is called How to Choose a Translation for All It's Worth. is actually by two people who worked on the NIV Bible, and they're arguing for dynamic but mostly for mediating or middle-of-the-road Bible. And uh, the other book is called The Word of God in English by Leland Ryken. He worked on the ESV Bible. And he is a proponent that I largely agree with, but I'll just tell you up front: he wrote it a bit more blunt and aggressive than I have given it to you today. And I would be happy to connect you with these resources, order these books for you if you want to, Just just let me know. And I wanna let you know that I read through both of them. And whenever I read through the first one, I was a proponent of that. I thought, yeah, this makes sense. I really wanted, yeah, I really. And then I read the next one, and, wow, well, this makes sense. I really. And then after I thought about them both for a while, I kind of sided with the more literal Bible reading. In closing, I want to talk about something that kind of saddens me, and that is this. I felt a little bit hesitant to occupy an entire Sunday with this topic because I get this. It's less motivational. It's not focused on show me how to live. It's all occupied with brainy stuff when it comes to the Bible. But I want to show you something else that saddens me is that we live in this paradox today. We have more Bible translations in our own language than any other time in history. And we have the lowest amount of biblical literacy than we've ever had in a long time. There was a time when the Bible wasn't accessible by the common man. But from about the mid-1500s, when the Bible was becoming accessible to men, to I don't know, maybe the early to mid-1900s, Bible reading was up, biblical literacy was high. Some of you said, you can talk to anybody on the street about Noah, they know, you know, they would know what you're talking about. That's not the case today. If you mention a name like Noah or Abraham, people are okay. I don't know a thing about him. And I'm not throwing this under the bus, but it's interesting that with the formation of this thought-for-thought Bible translation, and the proliferation of, of easily hundreds of English translations, with 10 to 15 commonly used English translations among Christians, for whatever reason, biblical literacy is down. And even though it is so unoriginal and so often repeating, I consider it an honor and privilege to implore you, urge you, beg you, take the Bible seriously, beat the odds and be a biblically literate Christian. I would exchange my pulpit and sermons in a heartbeat if it meant every one of you were diligently in the Scriptures. And we've just talked about manuscript background and translation philosophies. What would I encourage you when it comes to what Bible you should read? Well, as far as manuscript bases go, again, I'm either for either or. They're so similar to me that it's not a big deal, and I don't wet my pants every time I see a verse omission. But as translation philosophy goes... I'm going to word it this way. My head says literal, but my heart says the middle category, if you catch my illustration. That doesn't mean, oh good, Kevin says I can read a much easier Bible, I'm going to stick with that middle category. No, pick up a literal translation if you think you can. But if you do get a middle category Bible, read the footnotes, (laughs) because most of them are good about putting literal renderings in the footnotes if they use a dynamic translation. Another thing is that I would actually encourage you to read two Bibles. And you're like, I can't even read one. (laughs) Good, read two. Um, And if you're in a dynamic translation, NLT is a common dynamic translation. The message, I'm sorry, is actually in another category I didn't even discuss. It's called paraphrase. So please don't make that your day-to-day Bible. If a literal Bible is hard and you want to mediating, choose a CSB, an HCSB, or an NIV. Read it alongside your, your prized NLT and your message. But among literal Bibles, I think you might find that they're easier than you think they are. And if the Bible I read and preach from is not easy for you, ESV, I actually asked all my Bible nerdy friends and said, what is the most easiest literal translation? And I got about every version under the sun. But, from my own mind and thinking, the NASB just released a new update in 2020 and all the reviews are saying it's clear without sacrificing literalness. Or with hesitancy because of the way they handle genders, but I would also state the NRSB might be among the easiest literal translations. Or, do not let the words King James scare you. The new King James is fairly easy to read. I would just assume I'm preaching esv so stick with that but my biggest point is is with the season of the world that we're in in terms of bible translations you or i have no excuse to be ignorant as far as the bible is concerned amen let's pray father we do thank you for the season you've placed us in in the world that you've given us many translations to choose and read from Father, this is your word and we do confess and profess that the original authors and the way they, and the words they wrote down are your inspired word. And we thank you for the diligence that many have before us have taken in giving us your word. Help us to make a good decision on the Bible or Bibles that we read. And help us to not just be filled in the head with all of it, but also to be filled up in the heart from because of it. And we thank you for, um, thank you for the opportunity that we have in our nation, where the book or the books um, of the Bibles we get to choose from in other countries are banned. We can't even read them. Uh, we thank you for the freedom we enjoy here, and we pray that we would take full advantage of that freedom. And we love you, and we thank you, and we ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.